Please be seated. Deacons. Let's look at it very quickly and then we'll try to analyze uh, each of the terms. Notice likewise, he's been talking about elders. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Then you have the verse dealing with the women. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Isn't it fascinating that God has given us his word in human language, and uh, he's very upfront. Uh, in many ways, you can just read this at face value and, and grasp the gist of what God is saying, and yet there's enough substance, enough meat in God's words, that it takes more than just a brief, superficial surface reflection. You've got to look at the terms, especially in a passage where there's a listing of sort of vocabulary words. Uh, dig a little deeper and find out precisely what are these uh, qualifications referring to in order for us to determine as individuals whether we possess them and as a church whether or not uh, officers that are selected uh, possess them. So let's uh, look at each one of these and uh, make certain that we understand what uh, the Holy Spirit is intending to communicate by his selection of these particular terms. The first one is reverent. Uh, one way to study the Bible, uh, not the only way and not even the best way, but one way to do it is to look at a number of translations to see how the translators understood these terms. And you cannot necessarily assume that they're right, but looking at several of these will give you kind of some um, indicators of the gist, the essence of the term. Of course, the King James and American Standard grave, the New American Standard men of dignity, the NIV men uh, worthy of respect. Uh, Brother McCord, Hugo McCord was a member of the Lord's Church, been deceased for a number of years, uh, but uh, translated the entire New Testament, McCord's Testament, if you don't have that. Uh, he put, put the term respectful. I do not think that these are all saying different things. I think they're using synonyms and trying to get at uh, the point that the original term conveys. 
Uh, here are some further descriptions. Uh, a deacon must be uh, worthy of honor, a noble individual, uh, dignified. Notice the connection with this term and the New American rendering, men of dignity. Uh, serious. Notice that all of this, uh, in fact, this is conveyed somewhat in the term grave, uh, suggests a, a serious demeanor. A person, not that a, a, a Christian or a deacon or an elder cannot uh, have a sense of humor, but overall the thrust of their life is one of seriousness. They're able to um, control themselves to such an extent that they understand that beyond, you know, the the moments in time of entertainment and humor, uh, there's an undergirding foundation of serious reflection upon who we are, why we're here, and what God expects of us. And so the term sober-minded, uh, which would not only exclude, of course, um, intoxicants, things that, that go against sobriety, but also simply a serious-minded uh, individual. An individual that is worthy of honor due to the character that he uh, conveys to those around him. He inspires respect because of his uh, serious deportment. Uh, he's not a person who is flippant uh, about life. So uh, those are a number of terms and descriptions that you can focus on. And I realize in a short sermon like this, and we're hurrying through this, so to speak, uh, we might need more time just to reflect upon those the terminology that I'm setting before you, but uh, we'll move on and you can do further study on your own. Not, not double-tongued. What are we talking about here? See, obviously this is uh, an idiom. It's figurative language. He's not talking about a person who has a deformity where their tongue is kind of split and so they have kind of two tongues, right? Like a snake or something. So that's figurative language. An idiom, and we understand it in English as the Greeks would, a double-tongued person. You know, we also use another expression similar to this, a person who talks out of both sides of their mouths, which conjures up an interesting uh, image when you think about that. But again, it's an idiom that conveys meaning beyond the literal terminology. So, a double-tongued individual is insincere. They say one thing to one person and say the opposite to another person and even have a, an intent within their heart uh, to misrepresent and to deceive. Notice th these are things that all Christians ought to conform to. It would be a sin to do that second thing for any of us. Uh, so most all the qualifications given in the New Testament for elders and deacons apply to everybody. So why does he repeat the same basic Christian qualities and characteristics for these officers, because his point is that uh, while all of us sin, you don't want to put people into these positions that have not mastered these basic Christian attributes. And so they are being held to the same standard that all of us are being held to, except for the fact that um, they need to be ones who have largely conquered these particular items and show, uh, manifest them to a high degree in their lives. Saying one thing while meaning another, making different representations to different people about the same thing. These are all really ways of uh, repeating what is being said. Notice that that really boils down to being untruthful. Untruthful. All Christians ought to be people of intense honesty. 
intense truthfulness. And that is especially the case with elders and deacons. Not hypocritical, therefore, wanting to mislead people and deceive them. Uh, there's another idiom, two-faced. We understand what that means. The deacon should have solid convictions and stand for those convictions in any company. And therefore is not double-tongued. What about this term, uh, this phrase in English, not given to much wine? Notice on the surface, when you look at that, you would conclude, okay, then they can have some, just not much. And so probably most commentators and readers of the English translation would conclude. I'd like for us to pause here and spend a little bit of time with this because uh, it's worthy of our broader understanding of this subject as Christians, let alone with regard to officers in the church. You know, elders were, we simply had the expression not given to wine, not beside wine. So it leaves the impression that deacons are being allowed, uh, held to a lower standard. Um, so the question here is, does the use of the term much mean that uh, uh, this expression is used, by the way, to refer to the older women. Does it mean that they may imbibe a moderate amount? Same thing with the deacons. Uh, you see, you might draw that conclusion, but just think through this. That can't be what is being implied. Any more than when Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7, don't be overly wicked, he didn't mean, you know, you can be some wicked, just don't go overboard with that. 1 Peter 4.4, 4, they think it's strange that you run not with them into the same excess of riot. That's not intending to imply that moderate rioting would be okay. It's condemning the excessiveness, the excessive behavior that people engage in without making any comment about uh, engaging in that behavior to a lesser degree. Uh, and that's how language works, notice. It can forthrightly condemn some uh, really over-the-top behavior but not in any way intending to imply that the behavior in and of itself would be permissible if it is in fact not uh, so extreme. So you cannot assume that what is unlawful in excess is lawful in smaller amounts. That's an assumption that would be imposed on the text. Uh, we can refer to a person who is involved in, in a certain activity just on and on. Let's say an adulterer. And he, he engages in adultery you know, every chance he can get. Well, we don't mean to say by that, you know, if he would reduce the amount, that would be much better, or even permissible or acceptable. There is no moderate participation in actions that are in and of themselves sinful. Uh, Albert Barnes was a, a commentator. It's not affirmed that it would be proper for the deacon any more than the bishop to indulge in the use of wine in small quantities. But it's affirmed that a man who is much given to the use of wine ought not on any consideration to be a deacon. That's all that's being said. So if a person were being considered and somebody says, well, man, I see him at the bar every Friday night. Well, we wouldn't conclude, well, if he'll just go once a month, then it'll be okay. We're condemning the behavior that's being engaged in in an excessive way simply to impress upon individuals how harmful that would be to uh, that particular role in the church. Now, without going into a detailed study on this, which I would like uh, to spend much more time studying this and then present to you the fruit of that uh, effort. If you look uh, in the dictionary and at the word wine, if you see it uh, in any context in our culture, 
and therefore when you read an English translation, you will not, in fact the English reader really cannot get anything out of that term other than that this is an alcoholic drink, right? That's what wine means in American culture, in our dictionaries. That's how people use the term. Well, it's hard, therefore, for English uh, readers to understand that the Greek terms and uh, the Greek term and the Hebrew term that underlie the term wine in our English translations is not an automatic reference to an alcoholic fermented drink. It's just not. So either our English translators have done us a disservice, which they certainly have unintentionally, or the English language over time has changed. See, there are terms that can be, that occur in English 500 years ago that have completely changed their meaning. The exact same word used today can have, in fact, the opposite meaning of what it had 500 years ago. You know, for example, the King James use, uh, Version uses the term let to mean the exact opposite of what we mean by the word let, to allow. That's not what it meant in 1600. It meant to prevent the exact opposite. So we've got to be very careful. I'm not suggesting to you that we're, we're helpless in the face of our English translations, but the fact of the matter is English translations can mislead us on various uh, ideas, various words, and various terms. And we have to look closely to make sure that we know what is going on. The Greek word oinos and its equivalent in Hebrew, yayin, uh, referred to the juice of the grape in all of its forms. And in order to prove that to you, all you have to do is go to passages in the Old Testament and in the New and see where these terms clearly are used in a generic way to refer to the blood of the grape. And only context can then determine whether or not, or what state that juice is in. Whether or not it's still in the grape. It's used in the, in the Old Testament, for example, yayin on the vine. Well, that's not fermented. It's in the grape. And it's used all the way down uh, to its uh, oozing out of the grape, to its being tossed into a vat, and what comes out of a, by the way, wine press. Everybody knows that a wine press is where you put grapes in order to squeeze and stomp on them, and then out comes wine. A wine press. But everybody knows that's not fermented. So you're making an assumption when you assume that the English word wine refers to an alcoholic drink. In fact, uh, the uh, Greek has no W. So O-I, notice that, O-I-N-O-S. They're the same word. Uh, wine is an English transliteration of oinos. And really, yayin is as well. Notice the parallel letters that are carried through all of this, the stem. So is uh, the Latin vinum, or the German w-e-i-n, vine. That's their word for wine. Well, see, none of those are translations. They're just terms uh, like, um, like baptism is not a translation. It's a transliteration. And it's not translated. It should have been translated immerse. Well, wine should be translated, and here's the difficulty, the juice of the grape, or the liquid that comes from the grape. Well, how are you going to, how are you going to put all those words in an English translation? 
So it's one, that's one explanation for why they have uh, uh, done this to us. So this is a very important point. When you see in an English translation like the qualifications of deacons, not given to much wine, don't automatically assume that the term wine refers to an alcoholic drink. Number two, keep in mind that one of the big problems in the Greco-Roman world, which uh, you know we have this trouble in our culture, but we don't accentuate it. It's not talked about much, and no doubt not even um, uh, practiced much as far as food. It is practiced. Um, apparently at college parties and stuff with liquid like beer. But woven through much of the New Testament is an awareness of the secular pagan practice of ingesting large quantities of food or liquid simply for the purpose of stuffing oneself and then initiating uh, vomiting in order to fully stuff oneself again. This was very, very common behavior in uh, that part of, uh, during, in history, in, at this part, in period in time, and at this part of the world. So there are many passages that speak against this that kind of go right over our head because we don't really think in those terms as being a problem. For example, in Luke chapter 7, if you look carefully at this verse, they were critical of John because he was almost a hermit and uh, did not hardly eat or drink anything. A few grasshoppers type stuff. Jesus comes along and he does eat and drink like everybody. And they then accuse him of the opposite of what they accused John of. Well, there's no indication here that we're talking about a fermented drink. The contrast is not between non-fermented and fermented. The contrast is between, uh, in terms of quantity. John didn't hardly eat and drink. Jesus came and ate and drank, and they were just as critical of him. Call one, what? Um, he's got a demon. And then the other one, well, he's gluttonous. He, he fills himself full of juice. The, the term glutton here refers to food. Wine bibber refers to liquid. Jesus stuffs himself with food and liquid. That's all the passage is saying. And it's not telling us any more about the condition of the wine that is referred to. You, you have to read that into the passage, you see. And an English reader is going to do that. Because the word wine has one meaning in our minds. But I'm telling you it doesn't in the original language. So you've got to check yourself back up and study carefully to see what, what exactly is going on here. They never accused Jesus of drinking an intoxicating drink. But they did accuse him of uh, drinking large quantities of liquid, which was a false accusation. But of course, all of that comes out of the attitude that uh, presented it. All right, there's so much more that we could say about this, but I would suggest to you that... Um, this is a prohibition against liquid gluttony. Next, not greedy for money. The King James has not greedy, a filthy lucre. I remember as a child thinking that that was, you know, coming from parents who were involved in World War II, I thought maybe that was a German weapon that was used during World War II that needed to be cleaned. That doesn't translate much uh, for us, does it? 
Newer translations have not fond of sordid gain, not pursuing dishonest gain. In other words, money that is immoral uh, in, as one pursues it. It's not money that, you know, like for example, uh, uh, robbing people or robbing banks. That would be filthy lucre, money that has been acquired by evil behavior. And, uh, you know, I don't, I've never known an elder or a deacon uh, who were guilty of robbing a bank. But I've known some people that had a reputation in business for taking advantage of people in order to uh, gain money. That's what this qualification is talking about. You know, Christians are to be generous people. We're not greedy. We're not covetous. And therefore, when we're dealing with other people, we're not going to do anything that would make them feel like uh, money is what we're after. And even if that means we have to harm them in the process in order to achieve it, then we're going to do that. That's what this qualification is referring to. So, um, is, a, is a person who uh, aspires to an office a person who is eager for base gain? Notice another little wrinkle here. Uh, even though elders have ultimate, the, the ultimate responsibility for shepherding the flock, deacons, the nature of their work is such that they would tend to be more responsible for the money of the church. Well, that's just kind of uh, what you would expect, just like in, in Acts 6, where they're tending to the daily distribution uh, to the widows. So you see, it would be espe uh, especially a, a temptation to them. And so if money plays large in their lives as a major feature of their life in terms of acquiring and so forth, uh, they might be more tempted to uh, uh, misconduct themselves in that regard. And, the passage doesn't tie those two together, but I'm simply suggesting to you that that would be a reason why uh, this would be stated with regard to deacons. You know, don't you kind of feel that way about politicians? You know, that's one of the things, you may not like Trump one bit, but that's one of the things that kind of put us at ease. Oh, he's not there for money, because he's got it. Remember that? So what, what does that say about all the other politicians? We're a little bit concerned about whether or not they're there more for money and feathering their own nest. See, that just goes with the turf. By the way, think about this. Any position of authority carries that, that barb. I've seen people that were just good, down-to-earth, common folk be given a position of authority in or out of the church. And suddenly they begin, they become almost tyrants they uh, try to throw favors to relatives and, and, and certain friends and stuff. They get caught up in all the things that you would have never dreamed they would be a part of because it goes with the temptation associated with having power and control. And uh, the office of elder is an authoritative role. In my opinion, the role of deacon is not. It's an assigned uh, duty and the only decision-making that would take place with the deacons is that which has been delegated to them by the elders and generally, again, has to do with day-to-day -day, uh, matters, uh, you know, like tending to the building and things along that line. But uh, whenever you're dealing with money and making decisions along that line, 
it can be a danger. Is it not the case that the desire for money is the great sin of the world? Why do I say that? Well, you're familiar with uh, Paul's statement to Timothy. Not that the love of money is the only root, but it is a significant root of all the evil, all kinds of evil that exists. Um, so much of the New Testament, even the words of Jesus, are directed toward the use of our money and to what extent we are allowing a desire to acquire things and money uh, driving us in our Christian life. And notice uh, what it does. Here's Paul uh, warning Timothy to warn the brethren at Ephesus, no doubt, uh, that uh, there have been a lot of even members of the church, say, that have strayed from the faith because of greediness. And ultimately, they did not really get what they were after. Now, that astounds me about the, the segment in our population right here in Montgomery that's known for stealing from other people. They're thinking, I'm going to get a level of um, financial security that I see other people get when they work long, hard hours. Well, I'm going to short-circuit that, and I'm going to get that. And I've known a lot of people that are involved in that, and they don't ever get anywhere. They're spinning their wheels, and they have to just keep right on doing that kind of thing. When Christians get caught up in that, they look at, look at this graphic terminology that the Holy Spirit selected. Pierce themselves through with many sorrows. You can't, it's hard to convince a thief of that. But it's hard to convince the world about sin being bad for them. Most of the people of the world uh, proceed to plow right on through in their lives. So, churches are not above having uh, officers tempted to embezzle money. I was told many years ago, many, many years ago, about uh, a church up in Utah. And that very thing happened. Uh, one of the members, I think it was an elder, absconded, really, just literally absconded with the treasury of the church. And uh, so the church uh, didn't take it before the law. They just, you know, disfellowshipped him and, and broadcasted that, let it be known. And the Mormons came to the church there and said, wow, <laughs> this kind of thing happens in the Mormon church all the time. And there's nothing like this done where you take a public stand against a wayward member that has done that. So it made an impact on the Mormon community there because the church was willing to take the, their responsibility serious uh, to address uh, such a matter. Little side note there. Next, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Isn't this a fascinating uh, requirement, qualification? Holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith uh, with a clear conscience. You know, throughout the New Testament, the term mystery does not refer to something mysterious. In English, you see, that's how we think of that like a mystery novel or something. That's not the meaning of the term as it's used in the Bible. As it's used in the Bible, it refers to that which was once hidden, unrevealed, and has now been made known. That's the mystery of the gospel. It's not that there's anything mysterious about it. It's that it was pre-planned in eternity by God and then began to be 
hinted at in you know Genesis and Genesis 12 after chapter 3 and 4 and then you're moving on down and then finally in the first century it is revealed the mystery has now been made known there's the terminology of the New Testament so what this passage is saying what this qualification entails is that the deacon is uh, wedded to and tied to and deeply um, has deeply embraced the great doctrines of the Christian religion. He, he is uh, devoted to these wonderful truths that God formulated in his mind in eternity and now is made known. And um, so you would think that, well, this is more, deacons is more of a um, practical uh, work where, you know, it's a lot of uh, details that need to be done. And so you wouldn't so much think of the deacon as being as focused on spiritual things as, say, an elder would be. Well, that's simply not true. Here it is placed right into the qualifications. Deacons also have to be spiritually minded men who are really focused on Christianity, uh, the one true faith, the one true religion. Notice the terminology, pure conscience. That is, they are sincere and pure in their motive. Uh, they are concerned about doctrinal correctness, not contributing to the defense of error, and uh, avoiding a corrupt heart that, according to 1 John 3, would actually self-convict him. So, deacons are to uh, be spiritually minded, focused individuals. Very, very important. And again, we wouldn't, don't normally probably think of deacons in that light. So we're being jarred here to think through that. Then we have, let these first be tested. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, that there is some care that ought to be given to determining whether or not this individual is capable, qualified, and prepared uh, to do the work. The word means tried or proven. And notice that, uh, look, at, look at what's behind this. Let these first be tested. By whom? I mean, that implies somebody's got to do the testing, the examination, the looking at these men. Well, who's that? Well, did we not find in the selection process for elders, which we, we based largely on Acts 6, which we know is not referring to the selection of elders, but more likely deacons, but it is a scriptural, if not the scriptural, uh, selection process. And it's, it certainly highlights the, the features of it. That this is a congregational decision. That the members themselves are to be involved in the process. Well, then the other members need to examine this individual and see whether or not this individual is qualified, prepared, and fit to perform the duties that he will be called upon to perform. Notice that implies a relationship that is, has been engaged in long enough that you, can, you know that person well enough to make that assessment. My experience has been over the years in Churches of Christ that our acquaintance with each other, because of the nature of our culture, the times in which we live, we're separated by distance, we all go our separate ways, we're not around each other very much, except at services. 
we don't really know each other like we should. And so many times judgments are made about an individual solely based upon the time that we've been in the church building together. He's friendly, he greets me, he shakes my hand, he um, says he's glad to see me. I think he's qualified. Uh, that's really the way I've seen most members function. And they have no clue uh, whether or not this individual is greedy, or whether this person um, is two-faced on the, on the job in his place of business. And you say, well, Dave, how in the world can we determine that? And I don't know what to answer you. I'm just telling you this is what God says they need to be. Need to be. And if you're going to be a part of then selecting such men, you better make certain that they are. Investigation of some form or fashion, it seems to me, is necessary for all of these things to make certain that we truly do know uh, the individual. Going back to Acts 6, look out from among you men that have these attributes, these qualifications. Well, then you're going to have to do some looking. Notice that term, look out, implies investigation, examination. And notice the term blameless. That cannot mean sinless. I'm not aware that anywhere in the New Testament where the term blameless has occurred, that it means sinless. It's a broader term. Remember, it's used to refer to the elders there in Titus 1 and, and the beginning of 1 Timothy 3. Uh, it's kind of a catch-all term for all of these qualifications. Um, but specifically, um, here's a person who has so conducted himself that people do not think of him in terms of any particular allegation that can be rightfully brought against him. That's kind of the idea. He has a good reputation uh, with the people around him in terms of um, his conduct, his reputation, how he is perceived and assessed by the people who know him. All right, we have um, a couple more of these to look at in our next session together. And I would also like for us to spend a session or two talking about deaconesses. Do deacons have to be male? For that matter, do elders have to be male? You say, well, yeah, husband of one wife. Well, that could be generic, could it not, in the sense that, um, you know, for example, in Matthew chapter 19, uh, whosoever puts away his wife, except for foreign mate, fornication, marries another, commits adultery. Well, would that not also apply to the woman who puts away her husband? So there are generic expressions in the New Testament couched in male terminology that's intended to apply to both male and female. Maybe this is one of those times. That's how I would argue if I were attending over at such and such Church of Christ that has deaconesses. But we'll just go to our Bibles and see if we can determine God's will on that matter. If you need to respond to the gospel invitation, we give you opportunity to do that. Faith, repentance, confession, baptism, or as a Christian, if you need to come before the church, here's another opportunity to do that. Let's stand and sing together. Trust him in his present day.
gladly live. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender humbly at His feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken take me, Jesus, take me now. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender, Lord, I give myself to Thee. Fill me with Thy love and power. Let Thy blessings fall on me. I surrender all. I surrender Surrender all.